This episode of the Out of Bounds Podcast is brought to you by Fisher Skis. This is episode 200. I cannot believe we made it to this point. I'm rattled, shocked. Um, uh, yeah, I, we made it to 200 episodes. It's been four some odd years, and we're at episode 200, and this is the new format, and uh, this is what we do in case you're unfamiliar. Uh, first, thank you to everybody who's listened over the course of this time period. It's It's been great. We're having a, we're having a good time. We're going to keep rolling. Things are going better than ever, and I cannot uh, express to you how grateful I am for that. Um, we have an excellent episode, two excellent episodes, actually, if you're listening on the audio version and on the YouTube version, you have one coming up afterwards. Um, first we have Mike Douglas on the show, uh, the Godfather, uh, the dude is as cool as a cucumber. Um, (laughs) the dude's amazing. I've looked up to him for a long, long time. Uh, new Canadian air force. Uh, he's been with Solomon forever, switchback entertainment, uh, producing films for Solomon Freesky TV, Solomon TV Now. I mean, the dude does everything. And also, he is heavily involved with Protect Our Winters and Protect Our Winters Canada. Um, the dude's got a lot of great things to say. He makes some excellent arguments for why you should become a member of POW and why you should become more involved in your community and actually give a shit about climate change. Um, so, psyched on that interview. It's, it's a great listen. I hope you guys enjoy Mike as much as I do as much as I did, as much as I do. Anyway, um, and then we have Christian Pepper. Christian Pepper is uh, an internet sensation, if you will, XBMX rider, um, now mountain biker with some very bling bikes, some excellent content on the internet. Many of you have probably seen his videos, um, so I hope you guys enjoy that one as well. Um, before we get into the episode, there's a few housekeeping items to address. One, first and foremost... We have merch on the site. There's all kinds of stuff going on on the Out of Podcast site uh, and the Out of Collective site. Realistically, you can get to the Out of Collective site through the Out of Podcast site, whatever you want. Uh, Out of Podcast is where we host all the blog stuff, all the content. Uh, We'll be at outofpodcast.com. If you click the shop button, it'll direct you to outofcollective.com. We're making it so that that's going to be less confusing in the future. But if you're listening to this, you can get 30% off of merch on the website using promo code I listened, uh, and that'll get you that'll get you 30% off the vintage gear that's on there. That'll get you 30 off on the stickers, keychains, hats. We have hoodies coming out. That'll get you 30% off through the end of May. So keep that in mind. It's an episode 200 special. I'm gonna try not to ramble too much. First, we have Fisher Skis. Fisher Skis has been a partner of the show for two, three years now, and I could not ask for a better sponsor and a better partner to build this thing with. Uh, They have a brand new line of skis coming out for the fall. They have the Ranger line that has been completely redesigned. Uh, I'm thrilled. The skis are great. They ski amazing. Uh, They're fun. Somehow they're softer, but uh, more energetic and stiffer with metal in them. None of those things together seem to make any sense, but as soon as you get on one, it'll make perfect sense. For reference, I'm 220-ish. We're starting to slim down a little bit. Uh, And I ski at 183 Uh, in New England. I go bigger if I'm skiing out west. They're phenomenal skis. My go-to is the 102. The 96 is also making a big comeback because it's, one, it's a great color, and two, it's 
just skis really, really well. Um, the skis are great. Check everything out at fishersports.com. Uh, they also have a new boot coming for the kiddies in the fall and a redesigned Ranger Free, which are which is insane. The kids boot is the best kids boot that's ever existed for your little ones called the one and the two from Fisher. So look for that in stores in the fall. I cannot talk about this thing enough. Looks like a easy boot. And next, uh, we have Mamut. Mamut has been a partner of the show, if Ethan wants to switch this ever, uh, for a long time now. Um, this is uh, this is a partner that I've always kind of dreamed of having. They're they're great. Um, first of all, this is this is the gist of this ad. You get twenty five percent off of the best beacon that is on the planet Earth. Okay. I don't know about other planets, but on Earth, the best beacon in the world is the Berry Vox and the Berry Vox S. You can get 25% off, which never happens on Mammut's website, using promo code OUTOFBOUNDS25. O is capitalized, O is capitalized, B is capitalized. OUTOFBOUNDS25. And while you're there, you can also get 25% off of shovels, probes, whatever else is on there. The whole site, 25% off at mammut.com backslash us uh hit it up and i'm sure the same deal applies in canada they have amazing backpacks they have phenomenal rain gear summer running gear and it's just a rad company i mean Mamut, like I, I, there's an interview coming out in a couple of weeks you guys will hear uh it the product is so ridiculously well thought out like say what you will about colors and styles i i actually really like the new stuff it's really rad the colors are actually different than everybody else's which is cool but the product is so well thought out and well built it is the safest beacon um, and the best functioning beacon that is out there today in my opinion and in the opinion of people who are way more knowledgeable than me so don't take my word for it take the word of a million different people out there that enjoy the safety that a berry box beacon beacon offers them um, promo code is out of bounds, 25 capital O capital O capital B, uh, and save 25% off the whole Mammut website. That is all for ads for right now. I hope you guys enjoy this episode with Mike Douglas. The dude is a legend. Um, be sure to leave a review on iTunes, leave a review on Spotify, blah, 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 blah. Check out the blog post, check out all the new content on the YouTube. If you are not subscribing, subscribe to this shit now, please. And without further ado, we have Mike Douglas. Um, Mike, why don't you tell people, for those who don't know who you are, a little bit about yourself, and then we'll kind of run through the whole bit. You want me to tell people who I am? I don't want to introduce you. <laughs> I feel like that's <laughs> well, a disservice a, to the guest, right? I, I think, I think foremost, I'm a skier. I've been passionate about skiing since I was a little kid and, and, uh, always wondered if I could possibly make a life. Uh, around skiing and it turns out you can <laughs> and uh, and you can do it for quite a while um i've had a i've had a wild ride it's been it's been awesome i've i've got to play freestyle mogul skier um you know the whole twin tip free ski launch phase was pretty wild um which sort of rolled over into becoming a filmmaker and and trying to tell stories around skiing uh, using cameras and, and, and more recently, um, I've, I've gotten involved with protect our winters and I've, 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 uh, helped sort of grow that organization in Canada. So it's been a, it's been a fun ride for sure. 
you keep saying had a ski career, like or like had a life in ski, but you very much still have a life in skiing. Like, I mean, you're you're very well, involved. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I think I just look at my ski career as sort of going through phases. So there's, you know, there was a time when when mogul skiing was, you know, I was on the national team and that was my life. And, and, and then that ended and, and it, you know, a new chapter opens, I guess, I guess I'm, I'm, you know, it's like a book, like you go through these chapters <laughs> and, and uh, it's, it's interesting because I never believed when I was younger that you could keep it going as long as I have. And uh, it's, it's been a fun ride. Yeah. You're, you're definitely a role model for a lot of people. A lot of the younger athletes that are like, okay, how do I make it a career for more than, you know, a little bit, you've kind of managed to like stretch it out. I mean, how long, how long have you been a professional skier? Well, I guess that depends on how you define professional skier. Um, I got my first sponsors in 1989. Okay. So I don't know, even know how many years that was ago, but 33 years ago. Uh, But I would, I would say, I got my first paid contracts, um, a couple of years later. So probably like 91, 92, I was, I was getting paid to be a skier. So I guess, I don't know, is that professional skier? Yeah. I, I don't really, I don't really know where, where you draw the line these days. I have no idea either. All I know is that's multiple years before I was even born. So that's, uh, I think you've, you've made a career longer than most people have for sure. Um, what can I ask you? And I'm sure you've been asked this before. What, what do you attribute that longevity to? Well, I think there's a couple things. I think first and foremost is just, I, I just like skiing a lot. I, I like to be out in the mountains. I like to slide on snow and in, in its various forms. Um, you know, I, one of the things I like about skiing so much is that you can't get bored. Like if you, if you get bored, then you're just not looking in the right places because, um, you know, I think, as free skiers. And I would say, I'm guessing that most of your, your followers here in the, on the podcast are probably would consider themselves free skiers. Um, yeah, there's, you know, you can burn out or whatever. I'm tired of jumping. I'm tired of, you know, just chasing lines or whatever. But for me, um, there's just so many different ways to do it. You know, last year I went on this sort of like all mountain carving kick for a while. And I got super into it. And I was watching videos about these like European master carvers and trying to emulate their technique and, and really, you know, rail the ski over as hard as I can and, and stuff like that. And that was a really fun phase. I, I, and I didn't do much of that at all this year, but, um, but there's just so many different ways to do skiing. And, and I would say the second thing that I, I would attribute my longevity to is, is just, having really good timing because when I was young, um, you know, freestyle was, was really popular. So started as, as a mogul skier. And then we kind of rolled into the whole twin tip new school phase in the mid to late nineties. And, and, you know, it was all about jumping and it was all about doing tricks. And I was at a point in my life where I could do that. I was young enough. I, I was nimble and flexible enough to do that. And then as I got older and stiffer, whatever, um, it, it kind of started turning more to the backcountry. And then over the last decade, it's really turned into this sort of earn your turns kind of style where you go out and you tour and, and, and ski a, a line or, or ski powder or go on an adventure or whatever. And, and it's funny because if 
that sequence of what was popular within the sport would have happened in any other order. I don't think I could have stayed as long as I have. And, <laughs> and I just feel super lucky that I just happened to be at the right place at the right time. I don't know if that's entirely true. I think there's a lot of things that go into being an athlete and, and having a long career. And I think you have a lot of those things, those kind of intangible things that people don't necessarily talk about. I mean, at least from the outside looking in, you're creating, con I mean, you're, people talk about content creators now, but I mean, you've been creating content for forever, right? Like that's a, that's part of your brand. It's part of what you've done as, as a professional. So I think that adds to it as well. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, telling stories, I think, I think that that's as old as, as humans, right? I mean, it's, it's how we communicate. It's how that, how information gets passed along. And, and that's always been interesting for me. I mean, I made my, made my first ski movie in high school with a, with a buddy of mine in 1986. No so uh, th that's been something that's been in me all along. I just, and, and part of that is just that I really like skiing. I mean, I liked it so much that, that the reason that I, you know, started filming and taking photos with friends when I was younger is that I wanted to be able to relive that stuff in the off season. Yeah. You know, it's like cooking hot in the middle of the summer and I'll go open my photo album back then and, and flip through the, the pictures and, and dream of those days we had in the winter. So it's been, that that's definitely been part of it is, is how can I keep these feelings and, and this passion flowing all year round. Yeah. So let me ask you this then, do you think it's more difficult to be a professional skier in today's day and age? Like if you're starting as a professional in 2020 or 2022 or whatever, do you think it's more difficult or easier? Because there's on one hand, you have so much content that's out there in the world and it's so easy to make content. But on the other hand, there's so much content in the world and everybody's skiing at such a high level that I, I don't know. I, I guess I kind of struggle with this question as I'm talking to people more and more. It, you wonder, like, is it more difficult now to be a professional or is anybody a professional because they can make money in the sport? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I would say it's easier now than when I first started. And I, and I say that because there weren't, I mean, there when I started, it was the dawn of the professional free right. skier literally started by Scott Schmidt and Glenn Plake right. and the Greg stump crew. Right. I mean, th there were, there was no path to get paid to be a free skier back then. So the only way to become a professional skier and make a living as a skier was to be a, a high level competitor. Mm. Um, so but, but that changed, you know, by the mid nineties, when the whole twin tip revolution happened and, and free skiing started to take off all of a sudden it, it went, you know, the group of us that kind of broke through some of those barriers at the time made it really easy to get, to become a pro for a short time after that. I mean, when, when a, when a sport is growing like this, every brand is trying to build a team and, and, and get a piece of the action. And so you know, there, there were, they were, I mean, I remember showing up at, at, um, like super park back in 2000, 2001 or something like that. And there were literally like, you know, there'd be the Oakley rep or, or whatever brand of, of that was supporting free skiing. There'd be a guy there signing people up on the Hill. 
Like, well, that kid just did the sickest trick I'm ever going to see, have ever seen. Uh, let's get a contract in front of him right away. You know, it was it, so, so there was an easy time. And then now I feel like, you know, and, the, and I, I want to say there was a good 10 years of the kind of the glory days of it, where the contracts were pretty big. There was a lot of paid pros and, and you could make a pretty good living. And then I'd say in the last decade, it's, it's gotten harder again. And the good part of it is that everybody is, has the opportunity to do it. Cameras have never been cheaper. You've got a, everyone has a platform, you've got a social media channel or whatever. And, and you don't necessarily have to be the best skier. You know, you can be a really good creator or storyteller or, um, you know, look at a guy like Nico Vunier who, who makes these crazy looping visual effects videos and and he's crushing it right now and 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 nico's a great skier but he's not the best skier right but he's doing really well because he's creating content in a way that no one else is so um there's opportunities but you still have to be you know you still have to work hard and then on the comp side i don't think it's ever been harder to be honest the yeah. the, the level that we're seeing you know at the x games or on the free ride world tour is so high that the stakes are so high that uh that it's tough. And, and I'm, you know, my kids are, are getting close to being adults now. And, and I'm, I'm kind of relieved that they didn't follow in my footsteps because <laughs> I don't want to be that parent standing out on the side of the course, watching their kid do a, you know, triple cork off the 80 oh foot no. gap jump. Yeah. It's, I, I wonder how much value that that side of things has as a general to sponsors to and even to athletes like doing the competitive side of it right because if you're not at that very top tier you're not getting paid very much right and like there's not a lot of eyes on you and it's really hard to break through and you're really doing it because either you have that competitive nature or it's really what you love is competing right yeah yeah for sure i mean it's yeah, it's a, it's a small group. And, and that's when, you know, that's why I say, you know, when young people are asking me what, you know, how, how do I become pro? And these are pretty common questions that I know I get in. I was talking to Cody Townsend about this recently, you know, we get all these messages in our DMS and stuff from kids <laughs> saying, what, what do I need to do? And, and a lot of that advice, I mean, you can take the competition path for sure. It's, it's probably the easiest path. If you're, if you're very talented to make it through, like if you win comps, then you're going to get noticed. It's that simple. But aside from that, um, it's, it's creating content and, and telling stories and finding a way to make yourself unique. You know, how, how, how are you going to be different than that other kid over there? Who's really good too. And, and what's your, what's your story? Like, what are you about? And, and I think, especially, you know, when it comes to sponsors these days, there's not a lot of sponsors that are just looking for that kid who can huck. They're looking for that kid who can huck, but also is, is telling a story that's compelling and, and, and carrying that narrative. And, and, um, you know, one of the, the, the easiest examples to see is, is, um, someone like Nikolai Shermer, for example, right. from Norway, who's, who's out there skiing on the edge, but he's also, you know, telling stories about adventures in the mountains and doing it often, often through sort of an eco lens and, and how, you know, how his desire to, to 
not burn as much carbon kept him closer to home, which led to him to hiking in the mountains in his backyard. And he's been able to create a pretty compelling channel by doing that. So yeah, there's, there's definitely ways to do it, but you got to put some thought into it and you got to, you got to get creative. Yeah. I mean, he's one of the smartest people I think I've ever had on the show and I've talked to him a couple of times now. And every time I talk to him, I'm so impressed at his, not just his skiing, right? Because it's like what you said. I mean, there's better skiers in the world than, than Nikolai, but he, the way that he tells stories and the way that he puts his content together is so engaging for people that it, it puts him on a different platform. And then when he has something to say, like about climate or about emissions, they, they listen to him, right? Like they actually engage and they're like, okay, this person knows what they're talking about. And obviously he's very well educated and all this stuff, but it's, it's very interesting to see somebody take that route. Yeah, for sure. And, and, and I think, you know, for kids too, they need to be authentic, right? I mean, yeah. people these days through social media and whatever, you can tell when someone's doing it because they think they should or or someone told them to do it. And <laughs> and I think authenticity can go a long way as well. So yeah. you gotta you gotta be true to, to who you are. And and it's and it uh, you know, we're using this eco example with Nikolai, but but there's a lot of different ways to do it. And and there's a lot of different reasons that people you know, have a favorite skier or a favorite hockey player or whatever is because, you know, they can identify and connect often with someone on a level that's not just about the sport. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, and speak, I mean, Solomon has some of the best storytellers consistently, I think too. It's, it, it almost seems like that's Solomon's intention is to sign athletes that are able to tell stories, or maybe it's Solomon on the other side. And maybe you can speak to this. That's kind of promoting that aspect of it. But you look at Drew Peterson in ups and downs, like that story was amazing. And that connected him to so many people at a very, very intimate level. You look at the 50 project with Cody. I mean, you look at what you're, t- I mean, there's so much that there's so much that connects you, especially to Solomon athletes. It feels like that platform gives athletes a different level of connection with like with fans and other skiers and and people in the community yeah i i think that you know since we launched salmon tv which was salmon free ski tv back in 2007 um it, it became apparent right away that that people wanted to hear stories about skiing more than just like see the latest trick or see the sickest segment set to fast music in a, in a ski movie. I mean, there's all, there'll, there'll always be a place for that, but, but I think that, that a lot of people want to, to see deeper stuff. And through Solomon free ski TV, the brand kind of realized that, Hey, we're, we're making really good connections with, with skiers and, and passionate outdoors people here. And they for sure encouraged everyone on the team to, to come up with some way to, to, to tell a story. And, you know, no one's been better at it than Cody. Right. You know, Cody got to that point in his career where, where he'd kind of done it all. And it, I remember talking with him not long after he did the crack (laughs) and, and he was freaked out, man. He was, he was scared because he he didn't know where he was going to go from there. He's like, I just did the sketchiest, wildest, coolest thing I can ever imagine in the whole world. And what am I supposed to do next? And, And it took him a while to figure it out. And then he said, you know, he, he found Davenport's book and, and he was like, here's something that someone hasn't done. And, and I think this would be a really cool challenge. And, and when you look at the, the number of followers that are really 
like really behind Cody <laughs> in the 50 points. Like it's it's unbelievable. It's amazing. Oh yeah. There's like multiple, multiple meme accounts that are based just solely on things that Cody does in episodes. It's it's hilarious. Um can I so on on that topic kind of what what is your involvement with Solomon TV these days? Like what what are you what are you doing kind of behind the lens and especially on the switchback side? What what does a day to day look like for you? Well, it, it varies um, year to year, season to season. This year, I did a lot of production work. Okay, um, and I was behind the lens much, much more than than in front of the lens. I actually, uh, I actually dislocated my shoulder three months ago, nice. and that kind of slowed me down a little bit this winter in terms of getting out there and 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 skiing as hard as I can. It never stopped me. Fortunately, I've been able to ski. But, but I'm skiing through a little bit of pain and a little bit of discomfort and trying to, to manage that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I, we, we're doing a new project for Solomon. We've got a new film coming out um, that's still untitled, but it's essentially uh, we, we found six passionate skiers and then... Um, ask them who, who it was that inspired them to, to pursue a life on snow. And, and we kind of took, well, we actually pulled a whole bunch of skiers. We got it down to six and then everyone's story in this group is a little bit different. That person that inspired them. And then, and then what we did is we took those people to confront the person that inspired them. <laughs> and tell them, you know, like the, the effect that they had on their lives and then, and then filmed that process and also filmed them then skiing together and, and talking about what, what that idea of, of influence and mentorship really means. And um, yeah, so that's the big, that's the big project we're working on for Solomon this year. And then, um, and then, and then we've got a bunch of, with switchback, we've got a bunch of commercial clients as well. Awesome. Well, so is- it was pretty, pretty busy production season. And I just came out of the studio. I'm editing some stuff right now for one of our clients. So I, uh, I, I, I mean, I still get out. I think I skied, I think I'm close to like maybe 90 days or something this year. So I'm, I'm still out on snow a lot, but I, but I often have a big heavy backpack on these days. Yeah. That's pretty fucking good, man. How, so how much of your time, and this is kind of a loaded question, how much of your time is spent touring versus on the chairlift? (laughs) yeah i mean i would say that probably let's see here just trying to mentally reflect on the season i would say that 30 to 40 percent probably a third of the days i'm touring okay so i tour i tour quite a bit it's not it's not like an everyday thing but i i tour i tour a lot what that side of the sport has progressed so rapidly over the past few years. Can you kind of speak to like what, what that's going to look like, what you feel like that's looking like in your area? I guess to me, it just seems like there's like the numbers are just very high, right? And they're growing every single year. And I think that's a good thing for the sport, but then you worry about things like avalanche danger and people getting the right education and, uh, you know, ability to access gear. And then on the flip side of things, there's 
all the pass options that are out there. And I guess I kind of wonder about the split and where skiing is headed, whether it's more towards going to these mega resorts or if it's more towards going, you know, into the backcountry. Well, I mean, for sure, touring's grown. And I think that a lot of that growth has come off of, um, number one, the, the evolution in product. I mean, the products now compared to a decade ago are, are it's a night and day. Better, like it's yeah. so easy for me to go out on any given day and, and just have my skins in my backpack and, and my shovel and probe. It's, it's just always in there. And I have the option. I might go out and plan just to ski the hill, but I've got always have the option. I, so that's a big one for sure. I think another thing that's, that's driving it is just how crowded the hills are now. Mm. I mean, it's, it's really busy. And for me, a lot of the days that I go touring here in Whistler is because I just don't want to deal with the crowds and in, in, in the lines. I, I'd rather just go out and go for a walk and get a few powder turns and, and just have a, a nice, fun, mellow day out there. Um, I mean, I don't think the mega resort is going anywhere. Unfortunately, yeah, yeah. it's, uh, it's, it, it, yeah. I mean, we, we don't have to go down this road, but it's, it's, um, the number of passes of these mega passes being sold these days is, is insane. And, and, um, you know, and it, and as big as we think touring is, and for sure it's much more popular here than it was five years ago. It's, it's always funny. Cause one of our, one of our touring sort of classic routes that we do here at Whistler comes out right into the village. At the end of the day, you ski down this trail and you come out right in the village and, and it's always it always seems to be every time we come out, it's like the prime time for apres ski <laughs> and the longhorn. And I don't know if you've been to Whistler, but if you have anyone who's been to Whistler knows the longhorn is right at the bottom where the two mountains runs come together into the village. And I'm pretty sure that every time I came out this year, I pointed it out to my buddy and said, you know, we always think of skiing as being all this backcountry thing. We're out powder skiing and touring and all this. I'm like, there's probably twice as many people on that patio right now getting hammered as there was in the entire backcountry of Whistler today. So to, to more people that much more people than we think that is skiing and what we're doing over here, that's uh, that's just a, a little part. So, yeah, I get, it's a very bad point. And I think the, like I, I run a ski shop and that's the, I feel like I've said that way too much lately in interviews. So I got to stop doing that. But the, the point I'm making is you see on these holiday weekends, how many people come up and they just do not give a shit that the lines are going to be long. Like you tell them, like you're talking to them ahead of time and you're like, look, like maybe go out in the afternoon. And they're like, no, like we don't care. We're paying for parking. We're getting there and we're going to just go and wait in line. Like we we're going to be mad about it, but it's part of the experience. Worst case, we're going to go like just drink beers outside. Like that's, that's really what, what a lot of the experience is for, for so many people. And I'm sure a bunch of people that listen to this, that are casual skiers, they ski three, four or five times a year on holiday or whatever. That's, that's what skiing is to them is they bought a pass. I mean, it's 2.1 million Epic passes were sold last year. Right. So that's not a small number. Um, and <laughs> it's just insane to think about that. That's somebody's first experience. And that's my worry, I guess, is that that's somebody's first experience skiing is going and waiting in a line somewhere versus, first few times skiing is like starting in the backcountry or starting, you know, skinning up a resort or something like that, you know, like it just feels like a very different experience than even when I started skiing. 
Yeah. And I mean, I, I think, I think you're totally right. I mean, it, for a lot of people, it's just that social experience. It's something to do on the weekend. It's a, it's a way to, to go and tell stories and hang out with your buddies or, or whatever. And, you know, I even see that in my son now, I mean, he's, he's 18. He just got back from his first year at university and I could totally see that, that that's what his ski experience would be now would be three or four of his buddies they would go up, they would do two runs in the morning. They'd have a big lunch and have a couple of beers. And then they would go back out and do one more run. And then they go apres ski and go bananas for four hours. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, and, and it's interesting because when you, when you, you know, occasionally I'm, I'm sure we all do it. We have a buddy come up from the city that doesn't ski very often or whatever. We take them out for, for two or three runs and, and the way we ski, <laughs> <laughs> it just destroys them in like an hour. They, they, they're, they're oh, all oh, my legs. I'm cramping here, you know. And it's uh, <laughs> you realize that that us hardcore skiers, not, not everyone's like that. And um, and and thank goodness, not everyone's like that. Because <laughs> imagine, I mean, the powder already gets tracked out ridiculously fast. If everybody was up there chasing it, it would be insane. So yeah, I yeah, for sure, you're 100 percent right. And actually, to that point. A mutual friend of ours, uh, Dave Amaral, loves to do this to people. It's like I think it's his favorite hobby is to bring people in from the city or that don't ski very often and just hammer their legs into mush and just laugh at them the whole time and just, like, enjoy their experience because they're having a good time. They're just getting beat to shit the whole day, and then he'll go and he'll operate with them all day. Like, that's just what it is, and and some people enjoy that. Yeah, well, yeah, Digi Digi kind of encompasses the entire (laughs) ski experience because – Yes, he'll go up and hammer chairlifts as hard as he can, and then he'll make somebody uh, um, uh, ice someone in the parking lot <laughs> next, and then he'll go for a ski tour in the afternoon, and then back to the bar. So he, yeah. Digi, Digi definitely lives it. He's got seven phones in his pocket at all times, and he'll be flying a drone and all this shit. It's it's amazing. He's a he's a specimen. I actually, so I should, while we're on this topic, we I should ask you about this photo that he tweeted out to ask you about. What is it, you getting like? fake arrested actually arrested what is what is this photo what's the backstory so yeah that was i want to say 2017 or 18 we were we were actually down in utah filming the skier versus drone race Mm. where we where we put one of the top world cup ski racers against the world drone racing champion down a gated course at snowbird and it was our, we just finished the shoot and, and the race and we were down, I think we were having sushi somewhere in Salt Lake and we came out of the restaurant and I don't remember exact, the exact circumstances, but as we came out and we were horsing around or play fighting on the, <laughs> on the sidewalk and this cop came by and flipped his lights on and siren and then like circle back. He was on a motorbike and he circled back and we're like, Oh man, what? Like, <laughs> are we in trouble? Like what, what happened here? So he comes up and, uh, he's like, what are you guys doing? We're like, Oh, nothing. Uh, I can't, I can't remember exactly what it was that I, that made him stop. Anyway, he goes, he kind of goes to us like, I gotcha. You know, it was one of these things. <laughs> and then he's like, ah, he's just messing with you guys. Just, uh, just checking. I thought I'd stop and say hi. It's kind of a slow night, whatever. So we just ended up talking to this guy and I don't remember who told him to uh like lock that guy up he's sketchy and so he grabbed me and like pretend to handcuff me and stuff so it's, anyway it's a it's he was a, a he was a cool guy it was uh it was one of those those uh 
those experiences that that sort of like makes you believe that 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 cops are actually okay. Yeah, so. there's there are some good cops out there. It's yeah, it's been validated. There's not. I don't know how many there are, but there are there are good cops out there. Yeah, which is it's it's a nice nice thought to have. Um, okay, so kind of switching gears a little bit. Uh, you have been very involved with Protect Our Winters. Uh, it's like I look through your Twitter feed, and it's like the majority of the things that you tweet about is Protect Our Winters, and I think that's that's totally valid, and I I understand. When when did you start getting heavily involved? Why did you start getting heavily involved with Protect Our Winters? I actually just watched the video. Um, I forget what it was called, but you and Sam, I think his name is. Yeah, um, Sam and me. Sam and yeah. me. Um, and it's it's great. Like it's a if anybody hasn't watched it, it is like a very heartfelt, like short film. It's it might even be like thirty minutes long. It, I feel like it was fairly long. Um, but basically, it's just this younger thirteen-year-old kid. Just he wrote you a message saying how worried he was about climate change, and and that kind of spoke to me a lot. Like that, there's kids out there that are actually this worried about climate change. So. I guess what I'm asking is what what made you take an interest to it and how did you get so involved with POW at this point? Well, it, it all started for me back in the 90s and it was in the film, um, as you know, but but it was, I, I grew up, you know, I cut my chops on the Horseman Glacier at, at Blackcomb and and that was summer skiing and summer training was when where all the all the progression kind of happened and 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 I was up there every summer 30 plus days for 15 summers in a row. And so I got to know that glacier intimately. You know, I knew where every rock was, where, where the ice level was every year. And by the time we got into sort of the late nineties, the, the, the amount of change we were seeing in the glacier every summer became pretty dramatic and pretty obvious. And that was around the same time mm -hmm. that, that global warming was really make starting to make some headlines. And so for me, it was, it was not just this, you know, vague random news story. It was something that I was actually seeing, and and that made me kind of pay it, pay more attention. And and for a long time, you know, I always thought that the government was going to do something about it. You know, same similar thing with the ozone layer back in the year, late '80s, early '90s, where the, the nations of the world came together and said, "Okay, we've got to cut these chemicals out and and repair the ozone layer. We're all going to fry." And I figured something like that would happen again. And um, and it didn't. And, you know, I, I'm not an act. I never considered myself an activist. I my you know, my parents aren't hippies. They're just like normal blue collar workers, like, like most the average people. And, um, you know, I never really worried about stuff like this, but as time went on and I started to notice more things around the world and, and more changes happening and, and the voices became louder, I started speaking up. And, you know, started doing it through social media, Twitter, um, Instagram, whatever. And, um, but it was, I, I want to say, you know, and I, and I started to see what Jeremy and Powell was doing down in the U S and, and then eventually met up with the a crew from Powell and, and, um, and they brought me on as an ambassador. And shortly after that started, you know, I, it became more and more apparent that if we were going to do something about climate change, that we had to do it at a policy level, at a governmental level. So as POW became more political, um, it felt more, a little bit strange for me to be speaking out so much on U.S. politics, even though I am a little bit of a politics nerd. It's, it was kind of hard not to be 
with the whole what's been going on the last six or seven years down yeah. there. And so, um, but at the same time, you know, Canada has its own problems and, and we're not that much different than the U S. So we got, you know, myself and a few other athletes and individuals got pow going in Canada back in 2017, we started working on it and, uh, and yeah, here we are four years later and, and, um, I'm, you know, an athlete ambassador, but I'm also the, the chair of the, of the POW Canada board and, um, and have been quite active with them up here, you know, for the last few years. And, you know, as a, as a dad, right. It's, it's, it's tough to imagine what, you know, my, what my kids might have to endure in the future. And, and I, I don't want to, you know, get to my old age and, and feel like I didn't at least try to do something about it. So that's kind of what's, what's got me going. And then I get, you know, I got a letter from, from Sam, the one that you saw there in the film and, and hearing that there's 13 year old kids that are having trouble falling asleep at night. Cause they're so worried. That's, that sucks. It's, it's, you know, as, as adults, we can't be proud of that, that, that we're leaving this right. burden onto the kids. And so that's kind of, that's kind of been the main drive behind it. And, and I, I'm a firm believer that the only way we're going to tackle this problem at the scale needed is, is by banding together, joining a group, using a collective voice to make big level change. I mean, um, I try to live as clean of a lifestyle as I can, um, doing all the right things on a personal level as much as possible. But at the same time, I know that that's not going to get us there. There's no way. So we have to band together and we have to, to work as a group. So uh, let me, let me ask, I feel like every, how ambassador, athlete, whatever that I've talked to has mentioned activism and almost like kind of brushed off the activism side, like where they initially thought that activism was a bad thing. Like they didn't like think about it as something that they wanted to be was an activist. Why, why does that have a negative connotation? Do you think why? Like, because I feel like so many of the good things and we're seeing that more and more in today's culture come from people actually doing things like that that is activism in 2022 right is like actually like speaking up using your platform doing these positive things what i guess i just wonder why i don't know it almost seems like there's a underlying sense of like i don't know why i'm saying this but i'm saying it because i care right i guess i just don't necessarily understand it well i mean i think i think activists in general is it has a negative connotation to it i mean people see activists as the people that are disrupting their morning commute, you know, they're, they're they're blocking the highway. They're, they're doing this. And, and that, I guess that pisses a lot of people off. Um, uh, It's interesting. And and it's, it's kind of cool that uh, UN secretary general Antonio Guterres has, has come out and made some pretty bold statements about, you know, because the right wing and, and the, the, you know, the fossil fuel industry paints anyone who talks about climate change and, and um, environmentalism as, as radicals. Right. And, right. and he started to come out and say, what's radical is, is not, is knowing what the problem is and not trying to do anything about it. Mm. And, and it's also interesting that these activists that are, that are so disruptive right now are actually winning court cases right. against uh, the fossil fuel industry. Um, you know, kids that are banding together and saying, you know what, these guys are screwing our future. But but it's tough to shake 
it's tough to shake that stigma around being an activist. And, and I've never really felt comfortable. I mean, I have friends that are, that are activists. Like, you know, we, <laughs> we, we all know Caroline Gleick, right? Like Caroline Gleick is an activist. <laughs> so uh, she's an activist and she owns yeah. that and she's proud and, and that's great. Um, but I'm, you know, I, I guess I, I didn't grow up that way. I don't, I, I, I like skiing. Right. And, and people are like, what are you, what are you talking about? What do you know? You're just a skier. You know, it's, it's like, well, I'm a, I'm a, a, a human on planet earth concerned about the future of humanity. And, and if that makes me an activist, well, I, I guess I, yeah. um, I just, I just want to give my, my kids and, and, and the future generations a chance because yeah. I think, I think life on earth is, is pretty damn sweet a lot of the time, especially when you, when you get out into the natural world and, and, and get to play around. So, yeah, no, I a hundred percent agree. And it's, it seems insane to me that people think otherwise and, and don't see it from that perspective, but the, yeah, I don't know. The activism thing for me is very, <clears throat> it's very weird because even when I say things about certain, certain topics, certain things going on, I feel like, I, what am I fucking doing? Like I'm on a soapbox again, like doing this thing. And it's weird because you almost have this sense of guilt where like, what do I know? Right. And then somebody tells you, what do you know? Like just stick to skiing, stick to snow sports, bikes, whatever. But I think that's what matters, right? You impact people at a smaller, like this is kind of the community that we have is snow sports and outdoors. Like those are the people that you can talk to directly and they'll listen to you the most. And I think that's what POW has done really well is they've positioned all of these athletes in a way that makes it easy to kind of put that message across to like the outdoor user. It's like, we're just like you, we just want to go skiing. We just want to have a good, like we want to enjoy our time in the outdoors and we want to make sure it's there for our kids and for future generations. And honestly, for, for any of us still. Yeah, for sure. And I, I mean, as, as you know, like the, the people listening to us right now, there's a good chance that they're skiers and right. as skiers, you know, we, we, we're out there, we're seeing these changes. And I think that gives us an obligation to try and protect it. And, and you don't, you know, you don't have to necessarily take on climate change, but you might want to, protect that stand of trees that's near the bottom of the hill from the next condo development. You know, it's, it's, it's a habitat for, for the animals or, or for whatever it is, it can be anything, but, but if we don't start to protect these things that are around us, it's going to be too late. Yeah. What, this is again, a thing that I kind of end up asking anybody that comes on from POW or, you know, has some knowledge in this area, what can people do that's most impactful um, to help help protect our winters, help slow climate change, and just be better on the day-to-day, -day, right? Because I know the, the broad answer is like, okay, corporations make up the biggest difference, right? And I've heard Jeremy say it before, right? Like those bigger corporations are what makes the biggest impact in the fossil fuel industry, in, in climate change in general. But what can people do as an individual to make changes in their community, in their day-to-day -day lives? Uh, is there, is there something? Absolutely. A hundred percent. The first and most important thing is join a group because, you know, and, and we can use a negative example, uh, 
on the power <laughs> of groups to, to make it clear for people. Look at the NRA in the US. Yeah. Look at the pull that organization has. I mean, it's weakened in, in recent years, but the gun lobby through the NRA in the US has made it so that there's been no reform in that area in America, even though the stats are clear that that it's it's the proliferation of guns that is killing people and mass shootings and all these kinds of things. But because they have such a strong membership, politicians don't want to cross that membership. Mm. So it's similar, you know, and, and it's interesting because I was just in Ottawa last week meeting with the senior officials of the Canadian government, which was awesome. I mean, that's been a goal of POW Canada since the beginning was to was to get into those rooms with with the ministers that make the laws that affect us all on this side. And we were in that room last week. And, you know, here in POW Canada, we've got 23,000 members. And I told them in that room, I said, I'm going to come back here in a few years with 200,000 members. Mm. And they said, please do, <laughs> because we want you to, we, you know, if you guys have the backing, if the whole, all the skiers sign up for POW and all of a sudden there's this wave of force behind that brand, we have to listen to you and we want to listen to you. But, but it's really, it's numbers that talk, you know, mm -hmm. because as many, you know, there's 23,000 members um, standing behind POW Canada in those meeting rooms the other day, but there's also 23,000 members that were standing behind Alberta oil and gas saying, we need to protect our jobs. We need to protect Canadian oil and gas. So, you know, if we could come in with four times their numbers, all of a sudden that scale is going to tip in the yeah. right direction. Yeah. Yeah, I guess that's always the argument that I have a hard time answering is like, what about jobs, right? That's a, I, I never know what to say to that one, right? It's like, what about the jobs that the fossil fuel industry creates? Like, I again, I don't, I'm not saying it's a good thing, but it, what, it, what it about, exists. What about, what about the video store jobs at Blockbuster? <laughs> okay. What about the people that were making fax machines? <laughs> You know, this is a it, good action. That's actually a very good point. I'd never thought about it like that until right now. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. it's 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 been well studied by by leading universities that uh, building a sustainable future um, and sustainable energy it creates something like four times the jobs of the fossil fuel industry. No shit. So it's a, it's a, the jobs thing is kind of BS. I mean, the, the one thing is first of all, people don't like change. For sure. And and I and I can tell you that oil and gas workers like change even less because you know why? <laughs> they make so much money. Yeah. <laughs> like seriously, yeah. I, I was talking to a buddy of mine the other day and uh, his friend works up in the up in the tar sands in Alberta and makes more than double the wage of a of a master's degree high school teacher in BC. More than double. Unskilled guy working on the oil fields what the fuck? so uh, there you go i mean it, nobody you know nobody wants to to think that they're making 150 grand a year and then next year they're going to make 75 because they've had to shift industries so there's a lot of resistance there but but change is inevitable and and ultimately that change will be made uh you know it's it's at a certain point you have to embrace it and and things are always in flux nothing there's no there's no certainty. 
Yeah. So we, we have a choice. We, you know, we have a choice. We can, we can get on this change that we need sooner and, and get on the front foot when it comes to this transition, or we can wait and then have to deal with the fallout. And we're already starting to see that, especially, I don't know. I think the Northeast, you guys aren't, you're in the Northeast, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't think it's quite as bad for you guys, but here in BC, if we just look at the past year with the heat dome come through in, uh, in June last year, which, which was insane. We were breaking all time temperature records by five degrees Celsius. Uh, 600 people died in the lower mainland of Vancouver what? in 48 hours of heat of uh, heat stroke. Um, I mean, this is stuff like you, you think, wait, wait a sec, this is Canada, you know, it, on the coast. Like how, how can this even happen? But then that was followed by one of the worst fire seasons we've ever had. I mean, the, the whole of BC was shrouded in smoke for six weeks, two months, something like that. And then in the fall, we had uh, record-setting floods where every single highway between Vancouver and the rest of Canada was washed out, every highway. Yeah. And uh, and so, you know, you think, oh, well, it's supposed to get worse, so maybe we should think about doing something sooner than later. And, yeah, uh, it's, uh, yeah, that that part doesn't, that part is like a no, none of it is really a question for me at all. I, I always just wonder how to answer these questions. And I guess that's kind of what it, what an organization like POW does is how, how to answer those questions, what things, what tools, what resources that you can kind of get by being a member of POW, right? Like that's, that's part of the whole deal is getting that education um, and learning more. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it's blatant to me. Yeah. And I mean, one of the challenges with climate organizations as well is that it's a depressing topic, right? It's, it's a place that you don't want, even me, I, I don't want my mind to spend a lot of time thinking yeah. about this stuff. I have to kind of break out of it and, and just go for a bike ride or go for a ski or, or whatever. It's, it's a tough place. And, and one thing that we're working on with POW Canada is how can we make doing the right thing fun and, and motivating. And so we're, we're working on some, some, positive ways i'll say to get people more involved and and i'll use um electric vehicles as a as a great example so three years ago i finally uh bit the bullet my wife and i we bought an, an ev and now three years on i can say I, it was one of the best decisions i've ever made and not necessarily because wow i drive around guilt-free <laughs> but it's just really fun to drive yeah, like if you've a- ever driven an ev they've got so much torque off the line it's fun. I, I'm a bit of a tech nerd. I'm like trying to be as efficient as I can. Oh, I've got my uh, kilowatt hours per hundred K down to 8.9 on this drive. Woo-hoo, you know, and, uh, but I love it. It's the best car I've ever had. What'd and you get? We have a Kia Nero. Oh, sick. Yeah. So it's been, it's been fun. Like it's made, it's made doing, you know, the right thing. And of course there's, 10 people listening to this right now that are going, Oh, EVs are just as bad as gas cars and you should be riding a bike instead and whatever. But the thing is for a lot of people, it's, it's a positive experience. And it, and, and I think the more that, that we can create experiences that help point us in the right direction, that actually give people some enjoyment in their lives, the better off we're going to be. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I think that's, that's the right way to approach it. I mean, I don't, I don't know shit about anything, but it, I do think that that is it, the most motivating way to get people to do things isn't scare tactics. It's making them be like, okay, I can do the right thing. I can feel good about what I'm doing. 
and it's fun. Like I'm, I'm having a, a good time doing it. I think that's, I think that's huge. Yeah. Um, amazing. Um, let's, uh, do, I got a bunch of questions for you. Um, so we'll do some of those and I'll let you get out of here. I don't want to take too much of your time. Um, but a bunch of people have some pretty good questions actually. Uh, cool. Mike, do we get to ski next year? Okay. Um, Matt McCallery wants to know, uh, how has your enjoyment of skiing changed through the years, uh, Canadian Air Force to now? Uh, I would say like as a, in a general sense, it's, you know, back in the new Canadian Air Force days, it was more about excitement, accomplishment, um, breaking new ground all the time. Like every day we'd go out, we'd try to either do a trick better than we did it last time or come up with a new trick, or there was just this insane progression cycle. And that, that was super motivating in the beginning. And, and for a long time, I think I was motivated by pushing myself and trying to ski better than I ever have. And, and as the years have gone on now, I would say, I just like being out there. It's not necessarily, you know, there's days when I go out and try and push my skiing a little bit, but those are more rare than the days where I just want to be out there looking around, looking at the sights, um, breathing hard and, and just soaking up the natural world. It's, um, it's become, it's gone from, from adrenaline to more Zen, I would say, you know, in a nutshell. Mm. Do you still have that like desire for the adrenaline? Yeah, it, it, it's, it, it's something that you kind of have to wean yourself off because <laughs> one of the toughest things about becoming an aging pro skier is that, <laughs> you know, you had those highs when you were doing things at the cutting edge of the sport. It, it feels good. It's fun. <laughs> it's, you scare yourself, you pull it off. You're like, Whoa, that was awesome. And those, those feelings come, come less frequently. Um, but also, <laughs> you know, you just shift, you just realize that, that just being out there is, is sometimes all you need. Yeah, for sure. I, I can't even imagine. Um, let's see. Uh, this one was funny. Uh, big party weekend wants to know why are you the godfather and not some other part of the weird family tree of free skiing? <laughs> <laughs> it's from big, big party. question. Weekend. So the whole Godfather thing was started by the former marketing manager of Solomon, North America, Ted Wardlaw. And he didn't even bounce it off me. He, <laughs> he just, uh, he was putting together an ad campaign that ran in all the magazines. I want to say it was probably 2001 or two or some, somewhere around there. And it, it just, it, it was a shot of me doing some cool trick or whatever. And it just said the godfather of, of new, of the new school or something like that, Mike Douglas. And, and, and then it just kind of stuck and, and people started calling me godfather, whatever. And, and at a certain point you just, you just, well, okay. It could be worse. I mean, a lot of my buddies here <laughs> rag me and call me the grandfather now, but, uh, but uh, you know, there, I guess there's worse things to be called. Yeah, <laughs> there certainly is. I uh, that was a good question, actually. Um, that's that's funny. I don't know how. 
Uh, yeah, it's it's funny that you didn't have a choice in that nickname. And I always wonder, nicknames are a weird thing to give yourself anyway. Yeah, but to yeah, not, you don't want to give yourself a nickname. It's, yeah, yeah, it's kind of douchey. But, like, it, I, it is odd that someone would print that and not <laughs> run it by you. Yeah, and not, tell, and not even tell me. Yeah, <laughs> it was kind of, like, I saw it, I think I saw it in Freeze Magazine the first time or something. That's amazing. Um, Ryan Dunphy wants to know, uh, best story from the high North days. Mm. Well, the funny thing is, so Ryan, Ryan should know this, but, um, high North was Shane Zox's camp. So, uh, just, just a, a little camp ski summer ski camp history. I used to work Shane and I, Shane Zox and I used to work for John smart at, uh, SMS camps, which was now is now called momentum. It's actually the last ski camp surviving here on the glacier black home. And we, Shane and I bugged John to shift the camp from being pure moguls to being, to adding like this sort of new school free ski element to it. And so we, we kind of trial ran it one year and then realized it was, it was pretty popular. And so, I partnered, I ended up partnering with John at Momentum and starting like, you know, half the camp at that point sort of shifted over to this free ski stuff. And then Shane decided to start his own camp, which was High North. Mm -hmm. And so we operated kind of on opposite sides of the Showcase T-Bar on the Horseman Glacier. And so, you know, Momentum was in this corner and, and High North was over here in this corner. And there would just be these constant battles back and <laughs> forth, be it like stereo systems battling, like who could have music supremacy on the glacier and, and lots of, you know, stealing our flags and stuff like that. I want to say the high North guys were a little more prank orientated than we were. We were, we were a little bit more mature. They were more the punk glacier <laughs> punk, I'll say. Um, but I remember the, the, you know, we were all buddies though and all hanging out together. And I remember there was one summer where the high North guys started taking, started pranking each other internally inside the camp. And, um, they started to, they had this battle where everyone would one up it, one up it. And I, and if I recall, I think the prank ended when someone took a can of sardines and 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 went to one of the guy's cars and slipped the sardines down into the heat oh. of the car, which essentially, if I'm not mistaken, it ruined the car. Like they destroyed his car. What? Yeah. <laughs> so I'm pretty sure that's where that one ended. But it, those guys are in insane pranksters for sure. Oh my god. Yeah. No, I'm I'm good on that. I think I'm all I'm all set. Um, okay. Uh, last question. Um, maybe one more after that, depending on how fast I read, uh, mainly skiing wants to know Gaffney does B day backflips. How old can Mike get and still get upside down? Well, I don't know. I, I did a backflip about two weeks ago. Um, how'd it feel? I was, out, I was out skiing with a bunch of the young, uh, free ski, free ride superstars, uh, locals. And then there's this group of Jackson kids that are sponsored by Solomon. They were all up here a couple of weeks back. And, uh, and I was trying to keep up with them, man, that the talent in these teenagers is insane. Uh, it's, 
it's uh it's mind-blowing to be honest but they were egging me on and trying to get me to keep up and like, come on, man, you can do it. You can do it. And uh, so I went down and threw a backy off this wind lip under the peak chair, which I've never actually done before. I'd never even hit the thing. Um, so, yeah. I, and I mean, I, I love it. My shoulder definitely slowed me down a little bit this year. I haven't, haven't done a D spin this year, but, um, but I, I'm, I'm not done yet. You got time. And uh, Gaffney just slowed himself down. He got all beat up at uh, the Eagle's nest at squaw there. So if you're listening, Gaffney, uh, <laughs> hope you recover, bud, because we got to keep the battle going. For sure. That's amazing. I, how old are you now? Uh, 52. Are you really? Mm-hmm. You look fucking good for 52, man. You don't look that old. I would have guessed 40s. You Thanks, look, man. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> I don't know, although also I'm a horrible ju- Somebody asked me the other day how old I thought they were, and I said like 47 or something and he was 68 so take that with Whoa. a grain of salt i guess I'm, I'm not maybe not the best judge um okay la- last question um because it's kind of a solomon plug and we'll we'll give you that uh favorite pair of skis in the solomon line current favorite pair of skis i mean you can answer all time too well i would say my all-time fave was probably the pocket rocket. Okay. I think that that ski was just, you know, we did the 1080, which was super amazing, but, but I was a big driver of the pocket rocket because being the old guy in the group, I wanted, and from the guy from Whistler, I wanted something fat that I could take and do tricks in the backcountry. It was super light and very progressive at the time. And 90 mils underfoot was super fat. So <laughs> it was just hilarious. I haven't skied on a ski that narrow in years. Um, but my current ski, my current setup is, uh, I would say I'm about 70% skiing the uh, Salmon QST 106, okay. the new one. Yep. It just came out, which is sweet. I'm really digging good. it. Uh, and then I ski maybe about 20% on the Solomon stance 96. Okay. Really like that ski for ripping the hill. It's just super powerful. And then I'm about 10% on the Solomon MTN 95. So mm. super lightweight touring setup for, for the bigger touring days. Yeah. What, uh, and I'll ask this question because somebody was harping on me in the comments. He was like, ask him about skiing tight trees and all the hoopla that came from, uh, when you posted that you were skiing tight trees and somebody from new England was like, Oh, this is not tight enough. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I mean, I, I've, I've spent some time <laughs> skiing in the East and I have a lot of respect for East coast skiers. You, you guys are, you guys don't have it easy, but you charge hard. <laughs> and, um, and I, and I love it. I, I finally got back out and skied in the East this year. I was at Tromblant in February and it was nice. awesome. Um, but we have some pretty tight trees not far from my house and it's a little bit of a touring lap to go up there and, and ski through them. And I think the one he, he's referring to was, uh, there's a mountain bike trail and it's literally the trees on each side are so tight. You can't get through them. But <laughs> because I ride this trail in the summer all the time, I know exactly where the bends are. Yeah. So, so I can ski it much faster than you would ever ski it if you didn't know where you're going. Yeah. And, uh, and then I, I, I always try to give some props to the East coasters. Cause I know that's like, 
just like just a normal tree skiing run for you guys. So. Yeah, kind of. I don't know. People are people are nuts about this kind of stuff. Like it, they look at it on the internet and they're like, "Oh, I could ski that." And then you bring them there, and there's no way anybody skiing that, especially not at speed. It's we have a uh, Brooks Curran is a New England Bay skier, and it's the same story. He's always skiing tight shit, and like every time I share one of his videos, somebody's like, "Oh, it's not even that tight. It's not even not even that serious." And I'm just like, "Dude, like why 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 do we need to do this? Right. Why do we need to do this?" Um. Mike, thank you for the time. Uh, where can people find you on social? If people want to connect with you, where can they find you? The whole, the whole deal. Uh, well, I'm, I'm probably the, as you know, I'm probably the most active on Twitter and uh, Instagram. Both are Mike D ski. And uh, I don't really go on Facebook, but I do. I know my Instagram goes to Facebook. So uh, <laughs> it, it would appear as though I'm active there. And then um yeah. And then just check out uh, a lot of, a lot of the work that I do ends up on the Solomon TV YouTube channel. If they, people want to check that out, we've got our latest film, Sam and me's up there. If, yep. if you're interested in that conversation that we just had and uh, yeah, aside from that, hope to see you in the mountains. Cause honestly, I'm um, I'm spending less time on socials than I used to, which is, which yeah. I think is a good thing. It's for sure. A good thing. You're not leaving Twitter because of Elon. No, but I'm, I am, I'm, <laughs> I'm not a huge fan of what's coming, but I don't know. Maybe, maybe he'll either. surprise us in a good way. Yeah. Maybe he's a, he's a wild card. Um, he is. Cool. Wild card. Thank you, Mike. I appreciate the time. Yeah. Thanks. My pleasure. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Mike Douglas. Uh, he's a legend. So if you haven't and you're listening or watching to the video version, go back, watch that episode afterwards with Mike Douglas, the Godfather legend of skiing. Uh, next we have an episode with Christian Pepper. Christian Pepper is uh, TikTok famous, Instagram famous. The dude rips on a bike. He's one of the smoothest bicycle riders I've seen in my life. He's a great dude. Can't thank him enough for spending the time with us. Um, before we jump into that episode of Christian, check out our new sponsor. We have Mirror Energy. Mirror Energy is on the show uh, as a partner. Basically, if you're wondering what Mirror Energy does and you're like, oh, are they selling energy drinks? No, not really. They're selling real food for sport for the outdoors. Um, they make energy gels. They have hydration mix. Um, it is one of the most nutrient-dense actual food energy gels that is out there right now. Um, so you can go to mirrorenergy.com. That is M-U-I-R energy.com. And use promo code out of bounds to save 10% off on your purchase. Um, this energy gel variety 24 pack, that would be a great option for you. Get out, get some energy and try some year. Um, once again, promo code is out of bounds. The energy gels, in case you're wondering, are vegan, organic, gluten-free, paleo, non-GMO. Tell me how you get better than that. Um, check out some your energy stuff. Uh, and without further ado, here's Christian Pepper. Christian, why don't you tell people who you are, uh, a little bit about yourself, and then we'll go from there. Okay, cool. Um, I pretty much started riding bikes when I was a kid. Uh, my dad got me into it, and I had a, a really fun relationship with him growing up where, you know, all my friends would come over and just be excited to hang out with my dad because he uh, built jumps in the backyard, and he'd load everybody up in the minivan and take us all to the skate park, and... Uh, you know, take us to the races and stuff like that. And that just started a lifelong love of bikes. Uh, it started out with BMX, rode BMX, raced BMX as a kid. 
And uh, I kind of got tired of like the, com- the competitive aspect of it after maybe eight years or so. And I uh, started to just really find my love for dirt jumping because uh, I had this space in my backyard where we could get creative and kind of build whatever we wanted. And that just blossomed in me. Like I just love getting creative and, and building stuff and getting to ride it. And so now I uh, am pretty much like a full-time creator for uh, social media between my own channel and a number of channels that I'm contracted to uh, manage organically. Okay. And I get to do what I love for fun. And uh, that's like the best place to be. I'm really excited about it. Yeah. And you're fucking really good at it, by the way. Like, I don't know if you know this or not, but you're, you're very good at it. There's not many creators online that are super skilled and good at creating content and actually enjoy doing it. I feel like people are missing one of those three elements a lot of the time. And it seems like you've got all three going for you. I appreciate hearing that. <laughs> Why? What? I mean, this is kind of a personal question, like meaning for me, I, I'm always curious how do you think about content when you're going to put something out in the world, how do you relate it to people that are going to be viewing it? Right. Because it's a totally different thing than what you might necessarily want to post yourself. Um, like to get people to engage, to, to create shareable content, shit that like really makes people go, Oh, like that's, that's rad. Right. And I think your, your stuff has a certain flair to it. So talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah. Um, like I really appreciate the core like the core idea and like the group of people who are all about style and like aesthetic and making things look good and cool. And, uh, like I was in that vein for so long with a, you know, a BMX background. But, uh, when I got into mountain bikes, like I really just found more community and like more varying levels of skills and just people from all backgrounds. And, uh, I like engaging with all of them. And so, you know, that core style of content uh, sometimes alienates people and like creates a sense of exclusivity. And I think that mountain biking should just be for fun and for everybody. And uh, so, yeah, my content reflects that. Like I, I try to balance it by being like, by working on my riding and like being a good rider, but also having some of the funny dorky stuff and, you know, just more creative uh, stuff to kind of engage with people who, maybe aren't part of that core vein of mountain bikers. Right. Yeah. And that's, that's one of the things that I actually like so much about mountain biking is that that core culture does exist for sure. But I feel like the majority of people that buy a mountain bike are just out to go ride their mountain bike. Right. Like, and they want to do all this stuff, but most people are just out there having fun. I feel like in so many other aspects of the sport, whether it's road cycling, uh, XC racing, like all that kind of shit, gets a little too i mean it's rad for sure but it gets a little too serious sometimes and i think the kind of stuff that you're putting out where you're just like playing around and having fun on your bike promotes people just going out and riding and not worrying about like getting a strava kom or something like that right yeah that's what it is for me and for so many people is just like a healthy outlet to just go forget about stuff and yeah. have a good time um talk to me about bike setup what's different about your bike uh in the way that you like to run it than like say a stock like oem bike sure uh you know i'm i'm running like a lot of stuff stock on the bike that i have currently um more so than past bikes but i do like to i do like to run like a more 
dirt jump friendly tread. So that just means less knobby. Like I don't run like those big knobby tires because I'm trying to take care of dirt jumps that I'm digging and building and riding on. And those tend to cut them up pretty good. You also have better rolling speed with like a small, uh, small tread tire. So I run the Agaro from Vittoria. It's literally my favorite tire ever. Like I'm not just saying that because I'm sponsored by them, but <laughs> because they actually rock. Um, and I run them at pretty high PSI. So like 45 PSI where people are traditionally at my weight running around like 25 to 28 yep. for trail riding. Uh, that's the biggest difference. Um, I tend to like drop the fork, the fork travel on my bikes because I like a little bit of a steeper head angle. I know it's blasphemous according to current trends, <laughs> but a uh, steeper head angle is like a little bit more, uh, playful and like responsive and it also allows me to run a taller bar which uh like if i want to do can cans or something like that the top tube is farther away from me okay that makes sense uh it's funny that you say that because you're right it is almost blasphemous because everybody's trying to run like these super sloped out bikes and you watch a lot of the people that are competing in things like dark fest or formation uh rampage like they're running like super slack like like very relaxed head angle bikes, right? Like stuff that they can kind of do drops on. But I guess if you're jumping a bike, it kind of puts you in a different category than, than everybody else. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I'm not going like crazy fast, like the dark fest guys you are either. So, you know, my stuff's more playful tech, yeah. uh, just messing around. So it makes sense for me. The other difference is I've, uh, I've really enjoyed running 27.5 on my bikes lately. Uh, my bike right now is the Cannondale habit. It comes as a 29er. When I put 27.5 wheels on, it naturally dropped the bottom bracket closer to the ground. So I'm running 160 millimeter cranks, which are oh, quite a bit shorter than anything I've run before. And uh, But once you get used to them, like, they just feel like anything else. They feel good. No kidding. How does Cannondale feel about this? Like, you changing the bike up completely? <laughs> um, I, they're supportive. Like, they, they've always <laughs> been excited and authorizing the stuff that I'm doing. Um, because it's, it's me, you know what I mean? And I appreciate that they support me and not just pushing the agendas that, that they're, you know, developing in-house, but letting me be creative and kind of do what I want to do. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. That's amazing to me. It's always, it's funny to watch people like tinker with their bikes to that extreme because it's not, it's definitely not the standard. You don't see people doing it. And I think a lot of shops push people away from doing that stuff too, because they're like, it's just not the norm. But, and even running higher PSI, I mean, you're, you're obviously doing like, you're playing around, you're doing jumps, you kind of have a BMX background, running a higher tire pressure kind of makes sense. But for a lot of people, you get pushed into whatever the norm is that like everybody's doing for riding their local trails and it might not make the most sense. So I think this is probably good insight for people to know that they can kind of run their bike however they want to. Yeah. I mean, you got to realize like the industry trends are developed for the average rider and like the average rider is a trail rider. The average rider is probably more of an intermediate level rider and, uh, getting, you know, get having somebody who kind of already knows what they're doing and maybe doesn't need the bike to do all the work for them probably prefers a shorter travel bike in a lot of situations. You know, I see people all the time running these big 160, 170 millimeter bikes. And I'm like, man, that is a lot of extra to throw around when in reality, like the only place in the state of Utah where I think you need that much travel or more is in Virgin when you're riding rampage. Right. Yeah, <laughs> no, it's true. Um, yeah, that's, it's so crazy to me. What can I ask you? What 
the transition was like going from BMX to riding a mountain bike? I know you've kind of set up your mountain bike so that it's better for hitting jumps and all that kind of stuff like we just touched on. But I talked to Brad Sims a few weeks ago, and he kind of said the transition was weird but easy. Like, it, it made sense. Like, everything clicked. It was still a bike. Do you feel the same way? Like, does it was it weird for a little while? Was it frustrating? I mean, kind of talk to me about that. You know, uh, so I didn't get my first full suspension until uh, just less than five years ago. Twenty, I bought like a twenty seventeen or a twenty eighteen uh, SB four point five. So it's like a short travel twenty niner, and uh, I picked it because it felt like more just stiff and kind of BMXy compared to some of the other bikes that I had ridden. And so my transition into it was, yeah, kind of similar. Like it, it felt just natural, but it's a lot more work to do the kind of riding that I want to do because you have to push through the suspension until it firms up enough to feel rigid, if that makes sense. So like whether that's bottoming your bike out or running pressures at such a level that you push through, you know, a few inches of travel and then it firms up, mm. it's all of that extra effort and movement and work to pump and that's like the biggest element of jumping is pumping transitions so it's just extra work and uh extra heft but there's the plus side of that which is that you know anytime you go to do a moto whip or you know move the bike around in the air there's so much counterweight and so you can really lay into these whips and lean into it and just feel like you're hanging off the side of the bike because it has more heft to it and that aspect of it is really fun yeah yeah you look like you're having a blast all the time on the bike and even when you're showing people like when you're teaching i watched the video earlier of you teaching somebody how to hit jumps basically he's like how i forget what the guy's name was but it's got like a bajillion views on it and the guy's just kind of like joy of bike yes exactly yes that's so you're showing him how to hit jumps and basically just he's kind of he does a great job breaking down in this video the link in the show notes it basically he just breaks down and shows in slow motion how you're jumping off and what the differences it differences are as you're explaining it. So is there, is there like a quick tip that you have for people to get better at jumping their bikes? Because I feel like that's a thing that so many people want to do, but don't actually commit to doing. Yeah. You know, um, I, I got asked this question enough that I made an online course about it. And I feel like the number one takeaway from that course and from any of the stuff that I teach people in person is kind of counterintuitive. Like to learn how to jump, you really need to go ride a pump track and like learn how to pump because uh, that idea of manipulating transitions with your body weight and your muscles to generate speed or to slow down or to just change your trajectory in general, that is the core idea behind like riding a jump aggressively and being able to boost it um, controlling, controlling your trajectory is, is really what it's all about. And that's done by pumping. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, I feel like that's a hard concept for people to maybe grasp right up, like right as they're getting into the sport, because I don't know, it just doesn't make a lot of sense to people's head. I think if you come from a BMX background, it probably makes perfect sense right off the bat. I don't know. I don't know how easily accessible pump tracks are to people. So like, I always wonder what that transition is like, like just riding trails to going and hitting like your local bike park and stuff like that. Because that's what a lot, especially in new England here, like that's what everybody rides is just, if you want to get better at riding bike, 
riding bikes and riding jumps. You just hit the bike park over and over and over and over again. And that's what it seems like people do. But it also seems like the progression is almost stinted. You know, I wish there was more of those pump tracks available in local towns and cities. And it was kind of, I don't know, normalized a little more. Yeah. And, and like the other nice part for entry level riders is it's so much safer to learn how to control the jump instead of having the jump control you. Yeah. And once you learn how to pump, pumping literally is the tool for taking control and deciding what happens in the air. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I get, it's hard for me to even wrap my head around like what, what that motion looks like. And I guess, yeah, this video, I, which again, I'll share in the show notes, makes a lot of sense. And it kind of shows people like the progression of you hitting that lip where your tire is like your rear tire is basically just coming off of the lip at the very last second as you're pulling up on the bike and kind of straightening everything out. And that to me was like a total mind blowing thing. Like I never thought about it, right? Like I'm not good at jumping a bike, but I've, I'm okay. Like I can get off the ground and everything's fine. As soon as I thought about that motion, everything kind of clicked in my head a lot easier. So talk to me a little bit about what, what you do for courses. Like what, what kind of online course are you offering? Uh, I only have one. I made it like two and a half. Oh, three years or or update some stuff. And, uh, I just haven't (laughs) this course. Uh, I, I have people enrolling in it all the time. And it is pretty much, yeah, it's like a, it's a sequential step through of all these different things that you should learn to safely and comfortably leave the ground as an entry level to intermediate rider. And I've had people who are experts enroll in the course and say like, dude, this had a lot of stuff that was so valuable for me to kind of go back through and remember and like actually think about. And that was fun to hear because, uh, you know, you wouldn't think that an entry level course would be good for an advanced rider, but there's always little things that people can pick up on. Where, where can people find this course? Uh, I have a website for all my coaching stuff. It's ride spicy.com spicy, like Thanks. pepper. <laughs> so, uh, ride spicy.com. There's that one online course. Uh, I've traditionally done in-person coaching as well, whether it's one-on-one or group stuff. And this last eight months, I've been so busy with my day job that I just haven't made time for it. So now that I've got a spot close to me, this new bike park that we built, it's uh, going to be a lot easier to do group coaching, and I'll probably host a few clinics out there this summer. Sick. Well, multiple questions off of that. What What's your day job? What do you do to the, on the day-to-day? Cool. Um, it's funny because I, I studied at BYU, and I got a degree in engineering. And I, you know, did internships at Envy, making carbon fiber wheels at Tesla. I I got a full-time job at Yeti out of college designing carbon bikes. And uh, just over a year ago, I totally left my engineering degree and uh, took on my side hustle full-time, which was social media channel management, just organic channel management for outdoor brands, mainly in the cycling sphere, some in the overlanding sphere. And, uh, that's, yeah, that's, that's my day job. <laughs> what? That's amazing. How, how do you, how do you progress with that? How did you find out that this was like a viable way for you to go day to day? Uh, so I was working at Yeti 
over a year ago and I had like my first client who kind of just approached me saying like, Hey, you seem like a good fit for this. Do you, do you want to run our channel too? Kind of like you do your own and uh, just make it more product centric. And I said, uh, yeah, let's try it out. And uh, doing that just like, you know, for an hour or two per day and realizing how valuable it was and like the amount of money that I could make from it just kind of made sense to think like, Hey, you know, why don't I scale this up a little bit and see how it does in relation to my engineering job. And I I realized like with some mentorship pretty quickly that I needed to be in this space as well uh, because it just was more fulfilling to me. I got to, got to exercise my creative muscles more, um, just exciting and uh you know something that i was doing anyways so everything kind of just clicked together and it made more sense to start you know a social media agency and have that be my job so yeah now i do that and it's it's the best thing ever (laughs) that's amazing well i'm psyched for you um what what platform are you most interested in right like for me i i find myself most interested in something like twitter right which is probably the most useless of all the of all the social medias if we're being honest like in terms of total engagement and total reach but i don't know i enjoy it the most is there one that you enjoy more than the other is there one that you find yourself spending more time on i know you're on tiktok i know you're on instagram like what what do you find the most value for not just for yourself but for brands that you work with uh definitely instagram and i think it's going to stay that way for a while i will be interested though to see to see more companies pick up TikTok as a platform, especially in the cycling industry. I think it's starting to move that direction as we've had more prolific creators like, uh, like Seabass, you know, the normal MTB year and myself kind of doing fun, goofy content. Uh, Brendan outside is another one that I really like. He's amazing. And uh, yeah, those type of channels are going to start to move to to TikTok as well just because the viewership there can be insane yeah and uh it's just gonna it's gonna be a pivot for brands to start to adapt uh, adopt that platform that's like a little bit more just relatable and funny and not as core like i was saying before yeah and uh, it's really cool to see you know to see cannondale really supporting me in that to see specialized supporting uh sebastian with his and uh i think yeah, I, I think stuff's going to start to move that way. But for now, Instagram is king, especially in the cycling industry, and that's where I spend all of my that's where I spend all of my effort right now. Even though I have like ten times more followers on TikTok, most of my <laughs> effort is definitely in, in Instagram. I can you explain TikTok to me? I don't understand because like there's shit that I think should work really well, and then I'll throw it up there and it'll do trash. And then there's stuff that I'm like, this is trash. This is not good content, and it'll do exceedingly well. Like I just posted a video of like the bottoms of my skis being trashed with some random audio, and it just that blew up. But I do like a full on review or I talk about stuff cohesively and put time and effort into it, and it like basically is zero engagement. So talk to me about what works. Um, so there's a difference in the algorithms. Um, TikTok is much more governed by watch time and Instagram is much more governed by engagement. Okay. And so 
because of that, TikTok lends itself to like massive explosive growth because if your video has a good enough average watch time, the platform shows it to more and more people. And it, it, there's the For You page, which is essentially the Explore page for TikTok. But it's so, um, it's so unrelated to niche and product focus. And or sorry, like it's so unrelated to, you know, these different micro focuses like mountain biking. It's just like a general, this is funny, this is entertaining. Yeah. And so you get a crap load of followers and people seeing your stuff, but they're just anyone like it's just literally anybody on the internet it doesn't really like i don't think that it's really interest it's not interest based right versus instagram instagram takes more time to grow uh stuff goes less viral it can still get mad views but it tends to be more focused around the interest that it's kind of geared towards so that's why it's easier to build like a good loyal following and to have more consistent engagement because you're trying to put out, you know, valuable content on a regular basis that's all focused around the same niche and people are following you because of that on Instagram versus on TikTok, you know, you're upside down, your bottom of the ski video is just some random funny thing. So you're going to get a ton of people who follow you thinking it's going to be funny content. Mm. And then they realize like, oh, that's not actually what he does all the time. Uh, I stop engaging with the videos. They become stagnant followers and... Mm. That's why there's, you know, even my page, like there's so many pages where they have hundreds of thousands of followers, but your videos will get 6,000 views or 10,000 views. And then, you know, two weeks later, 2 million views or 20 million views. And so in that sense, it's just a little bit harder to predict what's going on. And that's, that's sometimes frustrating for a creator, you know, who's putting time and effort into stuff. It's really a a platform where you can kind of just get lucky and, uh, have things turn out (laughs) it drives me insane because that's what it feels like sometimes but now that you're saying that it it makes a lot of sense that it's based on watch time and it's based on consistently putting that shit out so i guess i should just go and trash all of my stuff all the time and uh, i'll go viral on tiktok and uh and then i can do that (laughs) but it's it's good i didn't expect to be having a content creation conversation with you about this stuff but it's it's actually really valuable for a lot of people listening and for athletes too like a lot of people struggle with creating a platform that's viable for their sponsors, right? That's one of the things that you notice more and more is that sponsors are every single year starting to care more about what their athletes do on social, right? And them having a presence and them being like, it's it's like the number one thing. And you see in a lot of pitch decks, like I saw one athlete's pitch deck the other day, like that they send out to sponsors and like the whole first two pages is all about social engagement. And I guess it's, yeah, I guess it's more valuable than people realize. I mean, you got to think about it. Like these days, marketers are becoming data scientists and how they decide where to put their budget is heavily driven by numbers. So it's hard to really justify, like, I'm going to spend this many dollars on a, a person who can get this and this race result when you can't really quantify what is the value of a race result? You know, there's a bunch of people that are there in person um, that see you race in their gear. That's cool. You know, standing on the podium, all obviously a really cool photo op. But then you look at social media where you say, hey, I posted this video showing your product in use and it was viewed by this many people. This many people shared it and saved it and sent it to their friends and talked about it. 
It's sparking conversations in the comments, in the DMs. And that type of information, not only is it like assigned a finite number that you can report on, but it's like way easier for a company to say, yeah, that's something that we can quantify and put budget behind. Yeah. Yeah, I guess. uh, So my next question is, do you think that values or devalues the athlete as just an athlete, right? Do you think it forces athletes to adapt and kind of present themselves as more than just an athlete? Is that too much work? Because to me, I look at it and now, and I've said this before, athletes kind of have to be athletes, marketers, and social influencers in order to create value for a company, but they're not necessarily getting paid that much more. So I guess I don't know. I don't know. I just don't get it. Like, does it make more sense that way? Um, I mean, you really have to, you have to kind of get into the nitty gritty of how much are, you know, content creators making because you've got people who have a big enough reach on their platforms that they can do brand deals with companies that are maybe outside of the direct cycling sphere. Got it. And they could, they can make mad money. Yeah. Like just, it's astounding to me. You know, I, I think and on TikTok, I started my TikTok less than a year ago. Um, and I've had months where I make over 10 grand on TikTok from brand deals, like just people wanting to promote products through TikTok. On just TikTok. Mind blowing to me. Just TikTok. That's so And that's crazy. aside from that's aside from the fact that you're also monetizing the platform. So like you can monetize Instagram and TikTok yep. and just make money off of your views. Then you've got brand deals working into it. Then you've got your long-term sponsorships working into it. And then you can work, you know, if that's your side hustle like me, then you've also got your day job to think about. So it's, uh, I think that athletes definitely need to invest their time there because, um, I mean, based off pink bikes data, you know, the average athlete is not making as much money as I think that they should be. And so this is an avenue that is going to help just support that. Yeah, I agree. And I, I guess I just wonder, <laughs> there's just so much time that needs to be, sp- I, and I know this because like I spend way too much time on social media and focusing on our, our social strategies. And it, I can't imagine being an athlete and doing all that stuff. It, it just seems so daunting to me, but it sounds worthwhile. Like you, you do the work, you get paid. It's, it's one of those situations, I guess. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely more value for the companies, you know, somebody, there's kind of two ends of the spectrum. There's someone who's like a hardcore athlete who maybe doesn't want to dedicate the time to content creation. Um, I won't try and give an example of one, but you can think of a ton of athletes who are just insane athletes that maybe post here and there and don't really do anything. And then you've got people who are more content creators that, you know, the bike, the bike skill is less important. It's more about being entertaining and uh, in interacting with people And both of those ends of the spectrum have so much value, but then there's like this middle space where you can start to combine those. And that's kind of the line that I'm trying to ride is like, you know, I'm not a super incredible athlete. I'm not like a mega content creator. I'm trying to find something in the middle that resonates more with what I want to do. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense. And it does. Yeah. I mean, it does have value, you know, like companies like to show someone who can ride their bike well and also be personable. And I think a lot of YouTubers do that well. Yeah, it is. It is crazy to me. It's always 
and I think you're a great example of this, of somebody who's highly skilled but also really cares about the nitty-gritty side of it and, like, getting into algorithms and figuring out what gets people engaged and kind of leaning into that. And I guess it's, uh, I don't know, I guess it's just a different way to look at things. And I think more and more people will start to do that, but I just wonder if it'll happen too late, you know? Like, it's it's starting, if you're not getting involved in the social space at this point, then it's, I don't know, it, it might be a little late. I think it's never too late, but, you know, a new platform is always on the horizon, so what's the new one? start now. What's the new one that we should be watching? Be real? Oh, I don't know about, I don't, I don't know about new platform beyond TikTok. I think TikTok is still new enough, and uh, mountain biking hasn't got into it enough that that's, you know, not a bad place to start, but Instagram is definitely worth your time right now, too. Sticky. Yeah, for sure. Um, well, let's get into some, actually, you know what, before we get into some questions, I do want to ask you on the pink bike side of things, because you brought it up. Do you think the sale to outside means anything? Do you think it changes anything in terms of what they're going to put out for content? Have you seen anything so far? I mean, I, it was one of the things that I was concerned about, like right away was that the content was going to change and that it was going to be like more ad based and, I don't know, watered down, but it, so far to me, doesn't seem like it's changed that much. So I was wondering if you had any thoughts on that. Have you been watching that at all? Yeah, I'm buddies with Brian that, uh, you know, founded pink bike. And I think he's excited about it and I'm excited about it because the same team of people, at least from what I know is still in there running things Yeah, and they're running things in the way that they like to. And that has, you know, kind of built the pink bike audience up until now. And so unless they like re-gear the whole team that's behind it, I don't anticipate it changing drastically, but I think it's a really cool thing to see, you know, outside investing in something like this because it just shows that the mountain bike, um, the mountain bike, what's the word? Our community is strong. You know, it has a lot of people into it. It has influence. There's money here. And bigger companies realizing that and investing in it, I think, is only a positive. Uh, the one concerning thing to me is that, like, all of the outlets are owned by the same company. <laughs> it is, yeah. <laughs> like, you know, Vital, Vital is, like, the, the only one that I could think of that's not owned by the same company. So I, I wonder how that will play into things. <laughs> uh, just because I, you know, I appreciate candor and i want products to be pushed because they're good and not just because you know a company has a monopoly on the information being shared <laughs> so we'll see yeah it's outside is probably the most controversial outdoor media outlet at this point because it's just they just do a lot of shit that doesn't i mean like i posted on the nft thing like last week or two weeks ago or something like that because I just don't understand why they do a lot of the things that they do. It seems like they're somehow, it seems like they're out of touch all the time, but then they have people in their, like, I don't know, in their repertoire, I guess, like that are so in touch with whatever scene it is. Right. So I just, I get confused about how they, how they see things. Yeah. It's interesting for sure. <laughs> I don't know. It's a bizarre world. Um, all right, let's get into some questions, uh, from a bunch of people. Um, you got a bunch of questions. I got a few. First question I want to ask is actually from a mutual friend of ours. Um, Mr. Technar, um, Mr. Dustin, Mr. Technar, Mr. Technar. Let's pull up his question. 
Um, let's see. Said I got Christian coming on tomorrow. What should I ask him? So he said he's a badass empty beer, right? He doesn't really ride trails, like just jump tracks. Never hit Moab or at least very rarely. I find that funny. Ask about that. I rode Deer Valley with him and I was like 90% sure that it was his first time riding trail. Um, so <laughs> talk to me. He's like the fucker's gifted on two wheels. Just never slums it with us normies <laughs> on the trails. <laughs> so do you not ride? I mean, are you not in the woods at all? Like, are you not like, is that not something that you're into at this point? Um, I love it. I have a okay. great time going trail riding. The thing is, I just don't have time. <laughs> so like <laughs> the, 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 you know, I have two kids. I've got my family here at home and I, <laughs> spend a lot of time with them and so when i get my time away from work and away from the family to go ride my my favorite thing to do is jump so i usually spend my time doing that yeah. uh, whether it's you know a local skate park or a local dirt jump spot um i don't really go out and trail ride on just like a normal basis because of that but things come up like sedona mountain bike festival or bentonville mountain bike festival or you know the sky fest bike park or sorry, Sky Park Bike Fest that I'm headed to in a couple weeks. And that's like when companies are bringing me out and I love trail riding because it's usually with a bunch of buddies or people that I know from social and you uh, get to just go out and have a good time on the trails. And like, luckily I've spent enough time trail riding and just messing around on dumb crap, like trialsy style riding. <laughs> yeah whether that's at the skate park on a BMX bike or like on a mountain bike that it kind of translates over and I can most of the time ride technical terrain. Uh, you, you see the video I posted from St. <laughs> George the other day, yeah. you know, sometimes I can't ride good terrain and, and I go over the bars on stuff, but uh, you know, I can ride, I can ride technical trail stuff fairly well. And so going out with the right people is really what it's all about and having the opportunity. Yeah. So you're not against it. You're not against slumming it with the normies as he says. <laughs> you know what i will really love um is having an e-bike i've been waiting for a good while really? just because of how the industry is right now uh i've been waiting a good while for an e-bike and i'm hoping we'll see every couple months it seems to get farther and farther delayed but i'm hoping to have an e-bike here in the next month or so canada's got a and, very uh, cool one right now that brand new one yeah i'm really excited about it want to try it out uh, especially because it will give me an opportunity to go Mac riding with my kid more easily. Mm. Uh, and so going out with Jay on the Mac ride and just trail riding like that is a great way to trail ride more, take him out of the house more, more fresh air for everybody. And, uh, then, you know, family bike rides, my wife can ride that with the trailer while I'm Mac riding with Jay on my bike. And I think it's just going to make things easier for trail riding, uh, and, easier to, you know, have a 50 pound kid on my handlebars that <laughs> I can get up the mountain. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. Those things are so cool. E-bikes have come so far, so rapidly. It's, it's blown my mind to see where those things are at right now. Yeah. They're amazing. Um, all right, let's get some other questions here. Also great paint jobs from Mr. Dustin. Those things look so good. Absolute fire. Yeah. They're, they're sick. Every time. Um, can you post something without your hat on? That's a weird one. Um, <laughs> um, let's see. First mountain bike we talked about. Oh, favorite trick. What I mean, Carson Wooten MTB wants to know what's your personal favorite trick to do? 
Oh, that's tough because I love moto whips and I love 360s. Those are probably my favorite tricks. Um, I didn't do a lot of 360s for the last year uh, since I had my shoulder reconstructed. But in the last couple of weeks, now that the new bike park's done, I've been able to toss a few out there and they just feel so good to come back to. You know, like my first one, I was kind of nervous coming into the line and like, you know, made sure I had Treadaholics filming it because I was like, what if I crash? But uh, <laughs> it was just like the easiest thing and just so natural and it feels good to come back to those. So that's amazing. Somewhere between 360 and Moto Whip. Something, yeah, something merged between those things. Um, Let's see. Uh, timeline for the rest of the bike park. There's a lot of bike park questions here. What? So talk to me a little bit about what the bike park is. What made you guys decide? Somebody else asked, what made you choose Eagle Mountain Bike Park of all parks? P.S. I love it. What? So what made you decide to do this? Yeah, so um, seven months ago, I moved from more northern Utah down into Saratoga Springs. And so the spot that I would normally ride, you know, whether it's Ogden bike park, which is way North or whether it's I street, you know, even I street is an hour away. And so if I wanted to go ride big dirt jumps, I'd have to drive an hour there and an hour back and, you know, back to the whole wife and kids and time with the family that wasn't going to fly, you know, wanting to drive two hours round trip. So Moved down here and I pretty much said, okay, it's time to build a dirt jump spot down here, whether it's going to be, you know, with like a local city or with somebody who has private property that I could just get their permission to go build on. And uh, Jared Williams hooked me up with the Lake Mountain Trail Association, which manages the Eagle Mountain City Bike Park. And they, you know, essentially, like, I, I don't know if they looked me up on social media or how they like decided to trust me, <laughs> but they were like, yeah, like go ahead and uh, just like drop what you want to do. And so I put together a proposal and a bunch of, you know, engineered drawings and sent them over to them and just said, Hey, here's what I want to do. And here's about how much it's going to cost. And uh, let's go ahead and start crowdfunding for it. And we crowdfunded like maybe five grand we were still, you know, way off of the goal. And so I realized we got to get some local companies involved in this because, you know, mountain biking is a, a good growing sport that a lot of people are starting to like take seriously and invest in. And you see that in the massive trail systems that Draper's putting in and stuff like that. So I talked to Maverick Adventures First Stop, the gas station chain. And since they, you know, do rampage coverage and they, you know, are all about outdoor adventure. I figured that's a good, you know, a good opportunity. They have a gas station just down the street, like the main turn that you take to get to the bike park. And uh, I didn't hear from them for a few months until like one day out of the blue, they sent me an email and they're like, Hey, congrats. Like we're granting, we're giving you this grant to build what you laid out to us. And I was like, Holy crap. Like this is, this is legit. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, we got funding, I started talking to more companies and Meta, the face or sorry, the parent company of Facebook got on board as well. And so now we had companies who were willing to, you know, put the cash down so that, you know, I could step some time away from my, my normal duties to invest time in designing a bike park and building it and subcontracting an excavation company to come in and, you know, getting local riders who know how to dig really good, like Tom Brooks and Dallin Brooks to come in and, 
and just kind of put our effort into this. And it turned out to be exactly what I was envisioning. And we got it done within six months of the time that I said, Hey, I want to build something. So like a fast turnaround, exactly what we needed. And I just couldn't be happier with, you know, everybody getting behind it. That's insane that you got meta involved with that. You, I mean, that's like how, how like, <laughs> that's kind of my, that's my only question is how does that, how does that just work out? Um, sounds kind of corny, but honestly, I attribute a lot of it to sales skills that I learned knocking doors as a college student, like selling door to door. No <laughs> kidding. Corny as heck, but like learning how to pitch people on stuff and put together ideas in a congruent manner that makes sense from a business perspective and uh, just putting together presentations and stuff like that and getting on Zoom calls and pitching people on stuff. So Oh. I think that that was instrumental. That's amazing. Oh, good for you, man. That's that's incredible. Um, la, I'm gonna ask you one or two more of these questions here. Um, what's your Bridger Moody wants to know? What's your advice for progress progressing big and not having too bad of crashes? Ah, uh, that seems like a loaded question. I don't know. Yeah, that, that's that's hard because like I don't crash very often. But when I crash, I get hurt. <laughs> and uh, I try not to let that happen. I feel like if I crashed more often, I'd be better at crashing. Like I could develop technique to save myself. <laughs> so I honestly, like anybody who is still agile enough and flexible enough to hit the ground without getting hurt too badly, do it. Like go out and just crash a whole bunch because you see people like C Curtis Downs, who now is... He's a professional rider, but he is an absolute master crasher. And that's because he's worked on so many new tricks and gone down so many times that he knows exactly how to do it safely. And that's like a skill that I want. That's a skill that I wish I had. And you have to start on that when you're, you know, 16, 18 years old and just hit the ground while you're still rubber. <laughs> yeah, dude, I, I will tell you what I will trade. If we could trade skills right now, I am, I am a very good crasher. I eat shit for a living. Like it is like what <laughs> it is the only thing on a bike that I am good at. And I think it's just from riding street, like riding BMX street stuff, like where you have to bail all the time because otherwise you're like getting hurt or you're running into traffic or like shit like that is insane to me so i i will happily trade for the ability to jump a bike and look smooth uh for <laughs> crashing because <laughs> it seems like it's one or the other a lot of times <laughs> um let's see last question for you and then i'll let you get out of here um let's see instagram engagement talked about that quincy pepper wants to know how you're so cool um let's see oh here you go here's a good one uh top three bucket list places to ride that you haven't been to yet Ooh, okay um i i'd love to just go to whistler like i haven't been to canada before uh and ride not just the resort but like a lot of the surrounding trails and parks uh, that spot that looks so sick is I think the Kamloops bike ranch yeah. looks really cool. Uh, so that that's one of them up there. Another one. I would love to go to New Zealand. 
Uh, there's oh. like the gorge road jumps and some stuff like that. That's just, you know, it was like the blueprint for every jump I've built in my life where they have perfect square sides and they're halfway covered in moss because it's more uh, humid there and just looks so cool and big and smooth. Would love to ride there. And a third one. Hmm. I actually heard from a buddy who lived in Dubai for the last oh, like God. six or eight months that there's some pretty cool riding in Dubai. Like, you know, you, you wonder who built it or like knows how to build really cool stuff out there. Cause you don't hear a lot of the riding community from Dubai. Right. But apparently there's some really awesome stuff out there and just being in like an otherworldly space and riding stuff like that would be sick. That's a good one. That's a wild card. They have uh, they have this thing called funding there uh, where they just can <laughs> pop up stuff wherever they want it, whenever they want it. And it's uh, it's insane to see some of the things that they've built there. That's a right. good one. I didn't I didn't expect that one from you. Um, <laughs> Christian, thank you. I appreciate the time. Uh, where can people find you on social if people want to reach out to you for social media strategy stuff and working with you? How do they get to you? What's uh, what's the whole bit here? All right. Uh, working with me on social media stuff. Uh, find me on LinkedIn. That's that's pretty funny to say. But yeah, I, <laughs> I keep up on LinkedIn for business stuff. Love that. On Instagram, you can find me just at Christian.Pepper. It's P-E-P-E-R. Uh, same handle on TikTok. And um, yeah, otherwise, just send me a DM and like, let's chat and connect. And always down to share ideas and talk about strategy. Awesome. Christian, thank you for the time. I appreciate you so much. Heck yeah. Thanks for having me, guys. Uh, beautiful. Christian Pepper. That dude's great. Jumps bike really, really well. Watch all of his videos and learn how to jump a bike. I mean, it's it's actually insane to see what that dude can do. So, Christian Pepper. Thanks.